You're listening to B2B Nation, a podcast from Technology Advice designed to help marketers navigate the modern B2B buyer's journey. Here's your host, Mike Pastor. I think we've all been in that space where we encounter a problem at work and think, there should be a tool that can do this for me. And for some people, that's a call to action. If you work in B2B, you're at least familiar with the idea of startup culture, even if you've never been directly involved in a startup. But every entrepreneur comes to that point where they realize that what they know from their work experience only gets them so far. The, the marketing departments, especially in kind of a, a new age where sales enablement is always a big part of it. And there's a lot more collaboration. If you're doing account-based marketing, you know, marketing has to be involved in sales, has to be involved in marketing, right? It's cyclical in nature. And so, you know, selling, marketing, strategic planning, you know, all of that came pretty, pretty naturally with going to the role of kind of a CEO. I, I think the, the big thing that's you know, been interesting is I feel like I have a PhD in fundraising now, which was never necessarily a function of the business that I doubt on it, right? Sales, marketing, all day, any day, every day. Uh, but the fundraising side and more of the mechanics of the, the financial in and outs of, you know, raising money, uh, you know, keeping your company, you know, the cash flow and everything going right. Uh, that has been something that has been largely new to me and is really caused me to appreciate finance guys and teams a lot more than I have in the past. That's Chad Waite of Peacekeeper. Chad is a seasoned B2B marketer who encountered a problem in his marketing role that seemingly had no solution. So he started a company to solve it. On this episode of B2B Nation, Chad shares his journey from B2B marketer to entrepreneur and some of the lessons he's learned along the way. Welcome to B2B Nation. Chad Waite from Peacekeeper. Welcome to B2B Nation. Why don't you take a minute and tell us who you are and what you do? Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me on board here. Uh, yeah, my name is Chad Waite. I am a husband, father of two, avid mountain biker, and um, <laughs> recent entry into the entrepreneurial world. I uh, used to work at a company called Divi and uh, left that job a few months ago to uh, start my own little startup that I've been working on kind of on the side for the last couple of years and turn it into something hopefully bigger than just on the side. All right. So I'll, I will, I'll tell the audience that the name of the startup is Peacekeeper. That's peace as in puzzle piece, piece of pie, P-I-E-C-E, not P-E-A-C-E. And from what I've heard of the story, it sounds like a classic case of a startup built to solve a specific problem that you yourself experienced in your marketing career. So why don't you tell us about the Peacekeeper story? Yeah, it, it definitely does not deviate from that narrative at all. It was a friction point that I experienced firsthand in a prior position. And it was a little surprised to find that there wasn't any tech solution kind of dedicated to solving this problem. So prior to leaving my, uh, you know, my work life to pursue the startup world, I was at a company called Divi. Uh, Divi was a spend and expense management uh, company they, they developed like software to keep kind of track of your receipts and your spending behavior, but they paired it with a credit card. So, you know, fintech space, it was growing really rapidly. And I was brought in to oversee the partner and channel sales departments there um, and basically grow them from a nascent idea into kind of a, a functional org within the company. And one thing that we would always have from our partners our partners in our channel sales uh, uh, org 
is they would request co-branded collateral, right? They would say, hey, look, you're coming to us. You're telling us to partner with Divi and refer our clients to you. And you're giving us all these one-sheeters under the sun about what you do and your services and your product. But we'd love to have our name and our logo on it, you know, co-brand it. And we can show our clients that we really are these prestigious partners with your company, with Divi. And, you know, we said, hey, that's a totally reasonable request. And what did we do? Well, we turned around and went straight to our designer and said, hey, can you make all these one-offs for uh, our many, many, many partners that want them? And they said, whoa, hold on now. That that takes a lot of time. And more importantly, that, uh, you know, the, the document that we're going to be co-branding that's not a static thing, right? That document always changes, whether it's, you know, based on the time of year and a promotion, or if we have different branding or messaging. And so we don't want to create all these one-off personalized versions and then have to create them all over again when that, you know, when that piece of content updates. And so we ended up looking around and trying to find a piece of software that could help us do what we ultimately called the three C's. Uh, help keep any promotional documents that we were providing our channel partners, keep those documents current because the documents are always changing, uh, compliant, meaning that we weren't violating any brand guidelines if there were any changes made or you know if there were disclosures that needed to be on the documents that it was absolutely sure that we are, you know we are saying those things. And then finally co-branded, right? pulling the information of our partners who wanted their information to be next to ours on those documents. And like I mentioned before, we were a little surprised to find that there wasn't much in the way that accomplished all three of those. Now, there are a lot of tech solutions that do parts of it, portions of those three Cs, but not a solution that wrapped all of it under one house that allowed for the co-branding and personalization, but still gave the brand complete control over iteration and life cycle and compliance regulations, stuff like that. So uh, we built it. When I say we, it was a skeleton team, uh, a couple of co-founders and myself built it uh, totally bootstrapped, uh, blood, sweat, and tears like the uh, glory, you know, the, the glorious startup story always goes. And finally got to the point where we saw enough market fit and enough demand to be able to, uh, you know, take it to the next level. And that led me to going uh, to peacekeeper full time. So, what's it been like for you going from marketer to co-founder who's got to do sales and marketing and maybe a bunch of other stuff too that you and I haven't talked about? <laughs> yeah, well, you know the proverbial saying it's wearing a lot of hats is definitely applicable here. Um, I, to be to be honest, it actually hasn't been all that different for me. I mean, I, I've primarily worked in high growth startups. Um, usually leading out marketing departments. The, the marketing departments, especially in kind of a, a new age where sales enablement is always a big part of it. And there's a lot more collaboration. If you're doing account-based marketing, you know, marketing has to be involved in sales, has to be involved in marketing, right? It's cyclical in nature. And so, you know, selling, marketing, strategic planning, you know, all of that came pretty, pretty naturally with going to the role of kind of a CEO. I, I think the, the big thing that's you know, been interesting is I feel like I have a PhD in fundraising now, which was never necessarily a function of the business that I doubt on it, right? Sales, marketing, all day, any day, every day. Uh, but the fundraising side and more of the mechanics of the, the financial in and outs of, you know, raising money, uh, you know, keeping your company, you know, the cash flow and everything going right, uh, that has been something that has been largely new to me and has really 
caused me to appreciate finance guys and teams a lot more than I have in the past. Um, so interesting, interesting learnings there. I feel like even if, even like if you were a finance major, that's not attracting people to invest in your company is not something that I think they cover in a lot of college finance classes. Like it's a, it's, it's a thing that I think most people I would bet have it's trial by fire, which as you have seen. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, my background prepared me well to operate within the fundraising space because you know, fundraising isn't necessarily just the financial in and out. It's kind of like, it's kind of like being a pilot, right? Like, like when you think about being a pilot, you're like, oh, they must spend tons of time learning how to fly the airplane and what all the instruments mean. And in reality, a pilot spends like, you know, a 10th of their time learning how to actually operate the equipment, the other 90% of it learning FAA regulations, right? There's kind of this, this back scene that that goes unseen uh, when, when they're learning what to do. And I feel like that's the same thing with entrepreneurs, right? Um, especially in the fundraising side, there's so much on learning how to sell and position and paint the vision that your company or your product's trying to do, where I think a lot of people focus on like, okay, if you know how to speak the speak and speak the numbers and, you know, make everything line up from a presentation standpoint, you'll, you'll be able to, you know, go get fundraising where the vast majority of it is, you know, it's a sales job. Exactly. So what do you, what have you learned? What, what, what do you think you take away from your startup experience? What has it taught you beyond the fundraising part about business, about marketing, things that have surprised you? Um, that's a lot. Uh, I, I think what I've learned is pretty fluid. You know, it, it, it feels like, I feel like it changes week to week. Probably the two biggest takeaways I've had, if I was to look at it in aggregate and sum it all up, uh, the, the one is just redefining patience. Right. Like, like I have learned that I am not a very patient person with process, with, you know, goals and trends, like fundraising, building a company from scratch. It takes a degree of patience that I think I had to learn how to incorporate in with my expectation setting and stuff pretty early. Right. the, The other side, the other thing, too, is that just so many people come out of the woodwork to help, right? People that you wouldn't necessarily expect to. Like the support for the entrepreneurial community is really something else. And now I'll say this, there are a lot of people who are very vocal about wanting to help entrepreneurs. And what I found is that they're oftentimes not all that helpful in providing something substantive, right? There's a lot lot of bark, maybe not a lot of bite. Where I've found the substance to come from is people who just come out of nowhere and they're willing to help test a product, help you explore a new vertical, connect you with users or, or you know, fundraising. Uh, there's so many unexpected points of contact that I've had and LinkedIn has just been the hotbed of this, right? People that are just kind of these vague connections that you know you're connected with, but you really don't know who they are. Uh, everybody's got them too. And you know, you post something up about your journey as an entrepreneur and all of a sudden they're there willing to help in a way that is is not insignificant. And you know, in, in the early days of building a company, even things like referrals, even things like feedback loops, I mean, these are the type of things that move the needle so much in helping you just get the traction and the validation and you know the, the planning that you need. And so many people have been doing that. Um, so I, that's one thing I've loved. I've actually absolutely loved to see the support for the entrepreneurial community in the places that you wouldn't expect. 
there's this weird sort of thing where you look at, especially for product-led organizations, right? It's like, listen to your customers. Your customers will tell you what you're doing right. Customers tell you what you're doing wrong. They'll tell you the features you need. They have like all the answers for you, but you have all these people who are willing to consult for startups and they're telling you, listen to your customers. Like, did, did I need a consultant to tell me that? Right. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I think one of the things that a lot of these consultants will say is, you know, listen to your customers, but don't, you know, don't have your, your, your scope creep on what you need to be accomplishing and who you need to be satisfied. Uh, you know, cause everybody has an opinion and they'll tell you what they think it should do and stuff. I will say though, that we have experienced largely the antithesis of this with Peacekeeper. You know, we, we've actually had a lot of people that have come to us and say, hey, it would be great if this was your next feature or if you could, you know, um, help with X, Y, and Z. And it's relatively ubiquitous in nature. And that's been surprising. Again, from somebody coming up, you know, in, in, the, in the startup world and just having everybody come to the table with really weird recommendations sometimes, right? I mean, like people think like, like, oh, you should make this usable by my cat or, you know, integrate it into the Alexa or something, you know, just like totally out of the blue recommendations for your products that really have no strategic bearing. And, um, you, you know, for us, it's it's been largely different. We, we've had most people echo the same thoughts. It's helped us define a, a really, really sharp and, and, you know, buttoned up product roadmap. And that's actually been part of the fundraising journey is it's, it's helpful to be able to say, yes, this is what we want to raise funds to accomplish because we know that this can, you know, do this for the product and this for our revenue. So we didn't have to hire a consultant for that, but, um, but we're also kind of the, I think the exception to the rule and the very unified feedback loop that we get from, from people who were willing to talk with us early days. Yeah. I think there's a skill maybe, I guess is the word I've worked at companies where one client sends a piece of feedback to one sales rep and they will suddenly change course in a big way because of this. And like, maybe that person's having a bad day. Maybe that, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you can't let that one piece of feedback change your entire course. Um, I think you kind of have to, what am I hearing most often and who am I hearing it from? And sort of that, the changes that you might make. Yeah, I also think that maintaining vision for what you want to do and then and then holding it against what you're actually seeing, you know, the 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 popularity of recommendations for what your product should do, there is some reconciliation that needs to happen there, right? Because as the old saying goes, you know, customers often don't know what they want. Uh, they're always right, but they often don't know what they want, right? So, like with Peacekeeper, we were developing something that by and large, hasn't really been on the market. And still, there's really nothing like it out there, right? It it serves a very specific solution for a specific problem. And we, when we were building it, we were trying to get as much feedback as possible, but it was also something that was kind of ethereal in nature, right? So, you know, early days, it was, people were saying, oh, well, we should do this and this and this. And, you know, we had a lot of people saying certain things and before we actually put code down and built out a product, you know, it, it was, we could have gone any direction. Now that we have a product though, and we're kind of giving customers this box to say, give us feedback within this realm. It's less vague, it's more defined. That's when all of a sudden it got really, really sharp and concise in terms of what we should be doing and focusing on next. And so I, I think, you know, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs do exactly what you said, Mike, where 
you know, they, they, especially if there's a big sale on the line or, you know, it's an early customer that can really move the needle for like revenue growth. They take a suggestion, they go to the product team, you know, whether it's a salesperson or, you know, I, I don't know, somebody on the revenue org and say, Hey, this customer wants this. So we should drop all existing products and, <laughs> you know, pivot and focus on this. And, and now you're not only, you know, going to disappoint your client, uh, most likely, but you're also making enemies uh, with your developers and your your product team. So yeah, well, I think the the biggest negative consequence of that is you you don't have like a north star to follow. You don't have somebody yeah. saying in six months we want to be here, in twelve months we want to be there, because you're constantly changing course based on what the last person you talked to said. And yep. Yeah, it's a slippery slope. Like you don't want to yeah. cut out all the feedback. Like there is some that's good, and if it is a customer that is you know, in the early days, the difference between you making it or not, you know, do what you need to, to accommodate them, but you know, don't, don't make a habit of it and recognize when it actually is either necessary or a worthwhile win versus exactly what you're saying, you know, kind of putting out little request fires here and there. And then all of a sudden you just got some chaos in your product. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on 2023? We've got an interesting year ahead of us. We're having this conversation at the start of Q4 for most people calendar Q4 2022. We've got some economic uncertainty, but we've also got this weird sort of uh, back to normal, maybe with in-person events. You and I first spoke at an in-person event uh, back at the end of August. (laughs) Uh, So what should marketers be looking at as they plan for 2023? What are you looking at for Peacekeeper with 2023? You know, that's a great question. Given my background, I... I always look at the power and the longevity of having a good partner marketing program in place, right? Because typically it's a lot more resilient to trends in the market when you can form relationships in selling, marketing, you know, pushing your product in a way that is mutually equitable with another company. So there's multiple vested interests in it, right? Partner marketing is probably going to become more and more entrenched in in 2023 and beyond. Um, and I will say that this is very different from something like affiliate marketing, right? Oftentimes, people look at this and say, "Oh, partner marketing is affiliate marketing." Well, well, no. You know, affiliate marketing is generally referrals for you know the interest of getting money in return. Where partner marketing is again, it's a mutually equitable thing where it's more about the environment that you're creating based on those referrals. Um, and, and again, that's what gives it the staying power. I also look at 2023, you know, through the lens, of course, of fundraising, right. And what that actually means for the world of startups and boy, what a weird year, you know, I often kind of <laughs> say tongue in cheek, like I, I picked the funniest summer to, to leave a job and to try to go pursue capital, uh, just because it's been all up and down. And, and I did hear one perspective though, that I think is really interesting that, I think that we'll actually see a steady, not increase, but probably a maintenance, maybe a little bit of a downturn, but not drastic like a lot of people are predicting in fundraising. Because so many people who who are you know high wealth individuals, and not super rich, they can't go start their own VC fund or something, but but you know, they've lost money in the stock market. And instead of rolling the dice on something that has just been so up and down and topsy turvy, that you know they're looking at getting into these like angel syndicate groups, uh, where there is a little bit more option for them to invest in something that, funny enough, is actually a little less turbulent if you can do it right. If you can you know 
weigh your odds and make your bets in a way that, you know, that is relying on kind of your own due diligence for a company versus putting money into a stock and hoping that the public shares the same sentiment, right? And so a lot of these earlier stage, kind of younger, uh, more individual related investors, um, it's been said that it, those are coming out of the woodwork a little bit and starting to you know, put their money elsewhere rather than just the stock market, where later stage, you know, Series A, Series B, Series C, kind of these bigger institutional funds are, are really slowing down. I mean, they, they're all sitting on the fence right now. It's it's pretty incredible how everybody's just holding their breath and waiting until the downturn's done. So, um, yeah, I don't know. You know, I have a feeling there's going to be like COVID, though, where in two years, we'll just be laughing at our predictions from two years ago. But <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that because I feel like as people look at startups for years, it's, I feel like for most of my adult life, it's been like tech startups, tech startups, right? And look, there's been a focus on biotech and life sciences and healthcare over the past few years that, you know, some people starting companies, looking to invest in companies, I think they feel like maybe they have more choices now that there are uh, gains to be made in, in some of these areas that came to the forefront during the pandemic. Um, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I also think just if you look at it, the difference in how you can actually crowdsource funding now, you know, you don't have to be an accredited investor to be able to put money into the startup scene, right? That is a material change. I think it was 2016 that that, you know, the, the crowdfunding uh, rules were changed. And, you know, that does, especially after something, you know, where the market's kind of going up and down and crazy. It gives another outlet, you know, not only choice and where you can invest, but you know, if you can invest at all, period. Uh, and and that's a huge incentive for people who are maybe looking at, you know, alternative options and lost a ton of money on Bitcoin because that seemed like the first original alternative option, crypto. And a lot of people have not fared so well; others have, but most people I know who kind of recreationally invested seem to uh, have had quite the ride. So. Who would have known that you'd lose money in currency not backed up by anything? (laughs) (laughs) There's a question we asked just about everybody on B2B Nation, and that is, what is your favorite tool? The rules here are you can't say Peacekeeper because you're selling it. You can't say your phone unless you're citing a specific app. But what are the tools that you can't work without, Chad? Yeah, uh, so I'll give you two. Uh, one is of a professional nature. The other one is of a personal nature. Uh, the, the first one is Webflow. Um, it's funny. I remember back in the day learning how to, you know, learning CSS and HTML, just some basic stuff so I could use Bootstrap uh, to go build my sites, right? Um, and I was like, I remember at that time, I was like, wow, I cannot believe how easy it is to now build and deploy a site that is functional and responsive. And then something like, Webflow comes along. And it's unreal how powerful of a tool that is for deploying, building, maintaining, upgrading, scaling websites without having to know, you know, CSS, HTML, JavaScript, like anything, really. I mean, it is, it is to me kind of the pinnacle point and click in a world that used to be extremely opposite of point and click. And I don't know, it just gives me hope that you know, th- that type of tool will allow a lot more adoption for websites that aren't just kind of your basic template, like Squarespace store, you know, Hello World 
WordPress first post template kind of thing. You know, it, it allows for so much flexibility and customization without actually really having to know, um, you know, exactly what you're doing behind the scenes. So if you are looking at building a website or if you are looking at, you know, upgrading what you already have, um, Webflow is a fabulous tool. And that is not like, I'm not like an influencer for them or anything. I just love it. I tell everybody that it's it's been, you know, it saved our hide a couple of times at Peacekeeper where we could just do quick deploys on changes and, and really do it really easy. Yeah, Webflow, um, gosh, any of us who had to actually write by hand HTML back in the <laughs> late 90s, early 2000s, I remember those days. And then the tools came along uh, a little more UI, a little more, you know, drag and drop. And then, but if you looked at the code, it was a complete and utter mess of what it left behind. So the tools have come a long way. The websites that you can build with cost-effective similar tools. Absolutely. So what's your, what's your personal tool you can't live without? Yeah, uh, I am going to plug a company called Gab Wireless, which makes watches. Uh, for kids that are cell phones. Um, so Verizon, T-Mobile, they have kind of their offering, but Gab's actually been doing this since like 2017. Uh, we got my son and my daughter, these watch phones. And I will tell any parent out there, especially if you're a working parent and you wanna keep an eye on the kids, but you're busy in meetings or something, uh, there is a level of autonomy that allows you to remain a working professional like never before, but still make sure that, you know, you're being a good parent. The, these watches are amazing. Um, I love it. I, I kind of tongue in cheek say it, you know, it allows you to be the helicopter parent without being a helicopter parent. So while that is of a more personal nature, um, it, it has impacted directly my ability to work and my productivity day to day. Um, you know, when my kids are out about doing things and I'm not having to track them down, call neighbors or whatever, um, you know, I can dial them directly, but I know that they're also not, uh, you know, wasting time on screen time or doing anything that I don't want them to on like a phone. So um, Gab Wireless, absolutely love it. I'd check it out if you have children. Something I think we've, all of us who have kids have learned over the past uh, almost three years now is that the Tools that help you manage your family and keep track of your family are just as important as the work productivity <laughs> tools because the line, it's a part of the line blurring that I don't think anybody's really talked about. Like, yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, we always, you know, again, I go, I go back to, you know, the 2019, the end of 2019, when, you know, the funny video of the day was that like financial and analyst on CNN interviewed, you know, the little toddler comes walking in, his nanny comes after him and stuff. You know, everybody thought that was so funny because it hadn't really been seen before and it wasn't something that everybody had experienced. Then we have, you know, a pandemic, we have everybody working from home and that becomes something that, you know, the opposite happens. If that doesn't happen, it's kind of nice to not have a, you know, a meeting that was interrupted or that wasn't interrupted, right? It, it happened so frequently. It was just an expected part or like, you know, I remember one time I was on a Zoom and somebody's cat jumped up and like knocked over their, you know, their soda cup or something. And it just like these things just became totally normal and it just became the standard setback. And I don't know, with Gab, it is, you know, I, I look at it as a productivity tool, even though it benefits my kids directly, but it takes a huge element of basically being a dad babysitter, you know, to some degree off the table. And um, I, I've loved it. So yeah, Gab Wireless, check it out. Uh, there, I will also plug their leadership team. Uh, they have an amazing leadership team too. So like good personal stories, uh, 
great company. They're very mission driven. So uh, yeah, a couple wins for them. <laughs> Chad Waite from Peacekeeper. Thanks for joining us here on B2B Nation. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Chad Waite for joining us on this episode of B2B Nation. Thanks also to the technology advice crew, Amy Dunn, KJ Pace, and Hunter Hill. If you found this episode insightful or interesting, share it with a friend or subscribe to B2B Nation on Apple, Google, SoundCloud, or Spotify. Mnemonics in the Guild wrote our theme song. We'll catch you next time on B2B Nation. 